Good morning. Good morning. Where are the speakers? It's a privilege to be here this morning. Um, it's really a, a, a great joy when I walk in and I see people that uh, some have known me since I was, well, yeah. Bobby and Linda, probably Shrivers have known me since I was a little bitty guy. Um, and, and choir, yes, uh, when I was young. So that's a great joy. Uh, now my mother-in-law here as well. She just moved here. Um, back in May, so coming up our one-year anniversary is a Wacoan, and we have been a joy to be around her. Um, if you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Psalm 111, and we'll also look at 112. If you want, there are handouts on the middle of the table, and on one of those sides, uh, there's both of those songs. And so we're going to read those aloud as a group, or someone will read those for us, um, and then we're going to do a little exercise uh, once we have uh, done that. Let me say something about these two psalms. Um, it's interesting that if we teach either of them in isolation, we will certainly be edified. But scholars believe these were not written in isolation from each other. They were probably written together. Uh, there are some unique things about them. Some call them the ABC psalms because they were written as uh, a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew poet, uh, po- excuse me, poetry, but it is a, it's a line where you have Hebrew letters going in order of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, on each of these. And so they follow this pattern. There's other psalms that do this, but these are right next to each other. But the other unique thing about these two psalms is that one is written about the righteousness of God, and the second, we'll look at today, is written about the righteousness of man. And I'm not sure who the scholar was. It could have been Charles Spurgeon. We always say that when in doubt, just say Charles Spurgeon said it. And (laughs) you probably sound smart enough. Um, But it speaks about how the book of Psalm 11 is like the sun, shining out the radiance and the beauty of the righteousness of God. Psalm 12, 112, is like the moon reflecting back to God, his radiance. That's our job. That's what we do with our lives. We reflect back to God the beauty and the radiance of his righteousness as we live righteous lives. And so we like to see these two together. So what I'd like to do is we're going to read each of these, and then we'll have a a moment at your table to do a little exercise. So what I'll do is I'll read Psalm um, 112, but I've asked Reuben to read Psalm 111 aloud for us. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him, He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it have a good understanding. 
His praise endures forever. And the church said, Amen. Amen to that. We turn to Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Once again, we say to the word of the Lord. Amen. 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 Um, Dr. Montgomery Boyce, who passed away years ago, is a great preacher, author. He said this about these psalms. He said, they are the same length, fall into identical stanza, and even have identical or similar phrases occurring at the same places in each. Both are precise acrostics. That is, they have 22 lines each, of which begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And some of us haven't seen it in this format next to each other. And what I'd like to do is take a moment at your table now that we've read it. And I'd like you to do two things. Um, one is to look on the left column, Psalm 111, and maybe with a pen and as you talk to each other, highlight what are these attributes of God's righteousness that we find in, in this passage. Certain words like his wondrous works. Um, we talked about his hands are faithful and just. So you might go through and just circle some of those and share what you see in observation of the attributes of his righteousness. And then after you do that, if you would, uh, look at the Psalm 112 and then make some comments about how are we then to reflect his righteousness. If we are the moon that reflects the light of the sun, uh, then take a moment to see how we reflect that. So um, I'll, I'll move you along to the second part, but just kind of go at your own pace. We'll take a few minutes to do this. And he's full of splendor and majesty. Attributes of the Lord's righteousness that we find. (coughs) He's gracious and merciful. Mm -hmm. Provider. Covenant maker. Powerful. He's giving. Yes. Faithful and just. Trustworthy. There again, faithfulness and uprightness. 
said in seven, it talks about how his precepts are trustworthy. And then in the other seven, it talks about trusting in the Lord. Mm-hmm. He's holy. He's awesome. His name is... When you look at Psalm 12, look at how the attributes of our lives mirror the life, uh, the righteousness of God. So how are we to mirror the righteousness of God um, as his followers? Well, having delight in his commandments. He wants us to be mighty in the land. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, I actually read Psalm 112 this morning one more time, just about to go some time. And uh, I've heard the word gracious used so many times it has mm. lost all meaning. So I looked it up and it said it is only used of God. And um, um, it's act, it's actually hearing the cry of the vexed debtor. So I thought about the New Testament, the guy that couldn't pay back the, the debt. He said, mm-hmm. "Oh, just give me some more time." You know, and because you know back then you didn't get a black mark on your FICO, you went to prison. Mm. You know, it's very harsh. Yeah, you know, and so. God, God is gracious to those who are the least deserving. Mm-hmm. And Take about 30 seconds here, and wrap up where you're at. It's, it's attributed to the man who fears God. I know. It's quick. Mm-hmm. Well, we're to reflect him by dealing generously and lending. Mm-hmm. We conduct our affairs with justice. Well, I guess we're to be like him and never be moved. Wow. Yeah, wow. Wow. That's, that's very attractive, isn't it? Yeah. Very desirable. And we're not to be afraid of bad news. Yeah, that's my favorite one. Oh? Huh? That's my favorite. I think about all these financial guys that are saying we are, you know, about the middle of the year, they're forecasting a pretty okay. hard crash for the U.S. economy and... You don't have to be afraid. Of Some of your tables are thinking, mm-hmm. we could do this all afternoon. There's so much there. I, part of me wants to take a picture of this room and display it to all past generations, not those who are younger than us, and show what it looks like to actually have a Bible open and a pen in your hand and a piece of paper in front of you because you can do things you can't do on a tablet you can do things you just can't go on the phone. So it's a beautiful picture of, of what it looks like to really inductively look at the Word of God. Um, in fact, maybe that's Reuben why God wanted to remind us that we're not always going to have slides. We're not always going to have the notes we want, all those sort of things. And so the Word of God just preaches to us and declares its truth. Um, I'm sure you uncovered a number of things 
from that, and I hope it sort of begins our study here. Um, I would like to begin Psalm 112 with the last verse of Psalm 111, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Some key words there, if you just notice, both fear and practice. The fear of the Lord. Now, we know it's not dread in the sense of frightened. We know from probably some past studies that this word fear points to the idea of awe and admiration and praise of God. So we, we ought to have this awe of our Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom, to be enthralled with and overwhelmed by his word. And his attributes, which you just referenced in Psalm 111. And so that begins with that point in our life. And then it says, and all those who practice it, practice what? Practice the commandments of God. Practice can be linked to the word obedience. All those who are obedient to the commandments of our Lord. We have a good understanding. You know, oftentimes, uh, as generations go by, the younger generation, as we all were at one time, we look at the older generation, and remember the days when you thought, oh, my parents don't know anything. You know, I've gone to school. They did not go to school. I, I'm, I'm a part of this new uh, modern generation. I know more. And every generation went through that. And then as we get older, we realize, particularly as Christians, as our mind has dwelt on this for 20, 30, 40 years, it's true, there may be some things we don't have understanding of, but there is much wisdom that has grown in our hearts as we have practiced the Word of God, as we have stood in awe of our Savior. So I want to encourage you that there's so much wisdom in this room because of the understanding you have of the Lord, of practicing this for so many decades, for many of you. And so don't shrink back. In offering that wisdom to others. It's, it's rich in you and what you have. And of course it goes on to say, his praise endures forever. This is a great transition to Psalm 112. Because it's a reminder once again that the praise of God endures. But what it's saying here is God's righteousness endures forever. Literally all those attributes you saw and all the attributes you see of God in the Bible... They endure not temporarily, but they endure forever and ever. And there should be maybe a therefore after this. Therefore, we can continue to stand in awe and fear of God forever and ever. We can continue to practice and be obedient to the word of God forever and ever. Because he will last forever. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He, he, he will exist for all time. He has existed for all Time And so as we turn to Psalm 112, we should be encouraged, whatever it's going to tell us, that we can continue with the enduring righteousness of God. And in fact, reflect that to the world around us. And so we begin really Psalm 112 with the very first verse. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. It looks very much like the last verse of Psalm 111. And it encourages us here to do what we just said, to fear the Lord. But then it throws in a different word. To greatly delight. To delight in the enduring righteousness of God. 
You know, usually in our culture, we use the word delight for things like food, right? That was delightful food. Maybe delightful company. One time, I, my son corrected his sister. It, it didn't go well, by the way. But he corrected his sister <laughs> when he was getting a little older and a little wiser. And she kept saying something was awesome. His pizza was awesome. The movie was awesome. And Jared, in his 12, 13-year-old wisdom, he said, you know, that really should be reserved just for God because he is the one deserving of our all, right? And Laurie said, well, it's still awesome pizza. You know? so, um, but, but sometimes we take words that probably were intended, right, for the awesomeness of God. And we minimize them, so it's hard to know what is awesome, right? So when it talks about we greatly delight in this. Yes, you're going to delight in family, delight in certain foods. I get that. But, but let's make sure we elevate God's word here enough to go, we delight in this. This is like honey, right? The sweetness of the word of God. It says we can delight in this. Why? Because his righteousness will endure forever. So we can delight in these commandments. You know, understanding delight and, and, and the reality that the more we delight in him, the more we delight in his commandments, there's blessing that pours over us. Someone might say, well, is that, is that self-centered? I mean, is that, are you doing that for yourself? I, I don't know. I just know that the more I delight in God, the more he seems to bring blessing upon me. I don't mean some of the material blessings we're talking about here, right? But internal, I mean, the, the deep blessings that we have. So he desires our praises. You know, if I, and I've been married to Lydia, Lydia's over there, um, I, my mother-in-law is so social that she didn't even save a chair for her daughter to sit next to her. She has so many people around. But Lydia's over there. Her mother's over here. Lydia and I have been married 35 years this July. And, uh, and you know, it's been a great time. And can you imagine that if I came to Lydia on our 35th wedding anniversary and I walked up to the front door of our home and I rang the doorbell so she wouldn't know it was me. And I pulled from behind my back a bouquet of roses. And I give it to her. And she says, oh, Jay, thank you. These are beautiful. And I said, well, honey, you know, I'm happy to do it. You know, it's, it's my duty. Um, I, you know, I, I took vows before our preacher 35 years ago. And I'm committed to that. So enjoy your flowers. Um, I, just, I just don't think it would fall on her the way I intended, right? When I say it's my duty. Right? But if I look at her and go, Lydia, it is my delight to give these to you because it brings me joy. It brings me happiness to see you receiving my praises. I, I love that. And somebody say, well, Jay, are you, are you giving her flowers so you'll be happy? No, but I may be giving her flowers because I want our marriage to be delightful, right? And the more that she is delightful, the more I'm delightful. The more she's happy and joyful, I'm happy. Does that make sense? And so when you go to worship this morning and you give the praises to God, whatever amount of blessing and return there is, what joy there is to be standing and delighting, not out of duty, right? Now, there is a sense of duty to our life. We know that. Obey the word of God. But, but John Piper used to, he wrote a book one time called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. I love that little turn of a phrase. But there is a sense of duty. But when our duty is, is wrapped around delight in the Lord, oh, it's like exponential like, to, to the impact in our worship and the impact in our lives. So I want to encourage you in that. Psalm 40, 
Verse 8 says, I delight to do your will. I don't dutifully do your will. I delight to do it. Your law is within what? In my heart. Your law is also in our minds. We know that. But, But there is a difference. If all the law was just in our minds, then we'll lose the affections we can have for God if it's in our heart. Psalm 1 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And as law, he meditates day and night. Let's not shrink back from embracing this word law. I know sometimes we, you know, we, we, we don't like law sometimes. But the word of God is, it's law. Like, we delight in this. His commandments, his laws, his precepts should bring us joy. The late, great Jonathan Edwards said this, true saints have their minds in the first place inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. And this is the spring of all their delights and the cream of all their pleasures. It is the joy of their joy. Oh, that we would write and preach and say things to each other like this. That we would remind each other, even in social settings, even when we're sitting with our family, that you know that, that the Word of God can be the spring of all our delights. Do you know that the Word of God can be the cream of all of our pleasures? It is the joy of our joy. It changes when we think about getting up and reading the Word of God. It changes the way we look at it. He goes on to use words like ravishingly lovely, glorious perfections, sweetness. All beautiful words about the Word of God. Now, as we, we pass into these different sections of Psalm 112, I just want to leave you with a bit of a caution. I think it's important to do that on your notes. If you found your notes or on the back side of that sheet, you can make notes if you'd like. Um, I want to give you cautions of performance and prosperity. Here's my just caution to you. We, we don't want to distort Christianity to where we make it into a series of performances. That if I perform this way, then I will get this thing. Some of us are raised by parents where we intuitively begin to do that. We figured out that if I do these things, I will finally get the love of my parents. Some of you didn't experience that as very unconditional love. Some of you may have been that type of parents. And so I want to make sure we don't take that performance mindset where you're going to have to earn my favor when we look at this passage, right? So Because grace is grace upon grace, right? It's unconditional grace. We didn't earn the favor of God. But also we want to watch out for this idea of prosperity. And I, and I say that because we need to be careful that we don't see some of these phrases when it starts to talk about the success of our families, our wealth, and our riches. And start to distort that into a very health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It is true that some people who are Christians become very wealthy and healthy. But it's true that there have been 2,000 years of followers of Christ who have died very poor, whose children didn't necessarily follow the way of Christ, whose homes did not reflect some of the things uh, of, of riches and possessions. And so it's very important that we see that we're not trying to get a prescription here, a formula, so that if I do this, then I'm going to get this. Right? Because you have to always remember, we live in a fallen, broken world. Fortunately, it has been redeemed by the righteousness of Christ, which we'll look at in a moment. And so I just want to caution you in that. What, one way we can avoid that is two ways. One is, remember, this is poetry, okay, Hebrew poetry. But the other is, let me just give you a little suggestion. I have a brother that the Schreibers knew well. Um, in fact, I think at one point, we might have all hoped that my brother and their daughter 
would get married, but that didn't happen. But, uh, but, but my brother was a wise man. He passed away about 14 years ago. And he told me something one time. He said, you know, it really helps if you read the Bible backwards. He said, read the Bible backwards? That sounds very difficult. He goes, not word for word, Jay. That's not what I'm trying to say. But imagine if you read the Bible through the lens of the second coming of Christ, through the lens of the New Testament church, through the lens of the coming of Christ and his baptism, we see the resurrection, we see the crucifixion. And we read then the Old Testament in light of what's already happened in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So we're, usually we think of, I read prophecy and then I see the prophecies come through in Christ. But sometimes it's helpful to read what's already happened and say, how does that reflect now on what I see in the Old Covenant? Right? Does that make sense? Because the, the meta-narrative of the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it is all about Jesus. He's the hero of the story. He, he is the centerpiece of the Bible. And so it may help you at times to think of the, when you read Old Testament passages, like words like righteousness, you read them in light of the fact that, well, where does righteousness ultimately come from? The righteousness of God is through the indwelling righteousness of Christ. The only reason any of us are righteous is because of the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to us. So let me just say a, a word about that um, as we think about these passages. I don't want you to judge or uh, maybe measure your life based on material wealth or prosperity or physical health or what your children do or not do, but base it, base it first and foremost on the enduring righteousness of Christ that was offered by grace upon grace to you. That that's how we measure our life. Because that, that, is, that is when we go to heaven, and it won't work this way, and, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? It's not because I say, well, let me show you all my measured wealth. Let me show you what my children have done. Let me show you the riches I've accumulated. Let me show you the good things I have done. When God asks me, why should I let you into heaven? I would say it's because of the righteousness of Christ that came by the blood of Christ, through faith in Christ. It's because of Christ and his righteousness. In fact, that's what he sees on us, is the righteousness of Christ. Let me just remind you, Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. Now turn to the New Testament, Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, we know that was Adam, so one act of righteousness, Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, polluted garments. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be no sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ knew no sin, and it was, as, as Jerry Bridges calls it, the great exchange. He knew no sin, but he took on our sin and exchanged our sin for his righteousness. And then was punished for our sin. It's a scandalous gospel that we live under. It's a scandalous grace that one would do such a thing. I say that to put this in perspective as we look at the blessings that we have, and we see how we walk in our life in righteousness. 
So in your notes, it says the blessing of righteousness. I just want to make a few comments as we go through here. I put them in about four sections. The first is family and household. So let's look at verse two. Talking about the righteous person. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. This type of language can crush us at moments if we think about some of our children who have not lived in upright lives. It could crush us if we wonder why we don't have some of the, the income and the savings and the, and the blessings financially that others seem to have. So we have to see it in light of when it was written and, and the, the poetic nature of it. It's the way to show blessing in these areas. But what is encouraging to me is when I simply see his righteousness endures forever. I rest in that righteousness. I'm, I'm struck by this particular quote, and I'll read it very specifically because I think it captures what, what I believe is a better way to, to think about this passage, not go down this road of prosperity and, uh, and some sort of performance if I do something right. It says, if anyone should desire to leave behind him a flourishing posterity, by the way, that should be all of us. I want to leave behind. A flourishing posterity. Let him not think to accomplish it by accumulating heaps of gold and silver, which we know from the New Testament, it speaks about the rich man who piled up wealth in his barns, right, and was scolded for that, and leaving them behind him. But by rightly recognizing God and serving him and commending his children to the guardianship and protection of God. I have a family member whose son has walked away from the faith and in turn somewhat walking away from her. And I, I watch as this woman faithfully commits her son to the guardianship and protection of God. And she will do it dutifully. And on some days she will delight in it, of course. But do you understand? As a righteous woman, she is continuing to pray over her son, the protection and the guardianship and the righteousness of God, hoping to see him walk upright in his life. Some of you are like that. You have children you never stop praying for. You plead the blood of Christ. You plead the righteousness of God over their life. I know that God's righteousness endures forever. I know that. I know that. And so I, I can't live in this moment of wealth, or this moment of health, or this moment of what my children do or don't do today or tomorrow. I live with the hope of his righteousness enduring forever. And one day, there, his righteousness, hopefully, pouring over all our family. So guard ourselves from getting on the wrong track, but also remind yourself to be constantly investing in your children and your grandchildren. It's a great joy. I have a six-year-old and a I don't have a six-year-old child. I have a six-year-old grandchild, four-year-old grandchild, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And I really feel, as many of you do, that part of my role in their life is to come alongside their parents and speak to them about the righteousness of God, to see me, them to see me delighting in his commandments, practicing yeah. obedience to his commandments. Yeah. I want them to see not a, not a puffed-up bebop, as they call me, but a righteous humble bebop who lives before the Lord. Now it goes on to say in verse 4, it says, I'm going to, I put the phrase light and contentment 
You won't find contentment in this passage, but I'll tell you why. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Those are attributes we want to have. It is well with a man who deals generously in lands, who conducts his affairs with justice. Light dawns in the darkness. I, I think most scholars would agree that this really is speaking to the idea that, like in Psalm 97, light is shown for the righteous, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness. So there's a sense of the light of the truth of God's word is a light that guides us through and beyond the darkness, away from the darkness. The 23rd Psalm speaks of this. And so there's this idea that light of God guides us in the darkness for the upright. Many of you can right now, you think of moments you've been in darkness, the darkness of the world's problems, the darkness of your own sin, and you've, you've had those moments where it's like almost like the light of God just lifts you up and breaks through that darkness in your life. And you feel the, the weight of those things off. Years ago, I used to go to First United Methodist Church. I wasn't a member there anymore, but I knew most of the people there, and they had an open sanctuary. And I'd often go down to the front of the sanctuary. The doors closed, the lights off. And I would find myself pacing back and forth and praying. And every now and then, I would just lay down on the carpet. Literally lay down, put my head on the floor and just cry out to God and pray to God. And there's, there are moments that I can remember the Lord. It's almost like God was saying, get up now. Just get up. I've heard you. I love you. I'm breaking through the darkness of your life, releasing you of these things. Get up. And run the race set before you. You know that feeling? Isn't that a beautiful feeling? To go, he's breaking through my darkness. There, when, the, when the explosion took place in West a few years ago, remember that, the chemical explosion? And people in the nursing home nearby were, were hurt from that, and they were pulling them out of windows, and they left everything behind. And they were in other nursing homes, and we went to visit some of them. And a woman was sitting there, probably in her 80s or 90s, in a wheelchair, most everything she had was destroyed. She had cuts from glass all over her face. And, and when I tell you the contentment I saw in this woman's face was unlike anything I see in people who may have wealth and riches and good health. She had a contentment rooted in the righteousness of God. That an explosion in the West, the glass on her face, the loss of her possessions was not going to rock her. Because she was steadfast in the Lord, and she found her contentment. It says in verse 5, It is well with the man who deals generously in lends. You know, we think about generosity. I, I think there's this sense of when we give away, right, we're blessed, right? We, we have this sense of as I give, there's blessing in return. We know that. It's all throughout Scripture. It's very, it's very plain to us. I want to say two things about this passage here at the end, though. It talks about two things, generosity and justice. And they're very similar in some ways. And here, if you want a definition or a way to describe this, I think this is what is what is true. It is well, like contentment with those who are generous and just. I think it is well we're content when we're generous and just. Generosity, here it is, is surrendering our possessions for the sake of others. It's surrendering our possessions. Your money is your possession. Your possessions are your possessions. You give them away for the sake of others. It is great joy in that. There's contentment in getting things out of our home and out of our hands and even out of our bank accounts to benefit others. And so seek the Lord to say, Lord, I think I'm a generous person. What else do I need to give away? 
What else can I let go of for the sake of others? I'll never forget when my friend Chris gave his pickup truck to a friend. I said, oh, you sold your truck to him? He said, no, I gave it to him. Chris was not a rich man. I said, Chris, you do know you have to go buy a car now, right? He goes, yeah, it's all right. But my friend needed the truck. He didn't make a deal with him. He didn't assume a note. He didn't have to pay in payments. He just gave it. And there was this contentment on Chris's face. And I thought, do I have that contentment on my face? And then it says, again in verse 5, there's contentment, there's it is well with those who conduct his affairs with justice. So the, the, the commonality of these two definitions are this. If generosity is surrendering our possessions for the sake of others. Justice is living rightly and willingly surrendering our rights for the sake of others. This may be a bigger test to our contentment than giving away stuff. Because we love our rights. I only tell this story because it's current. Um, but it reflects on me, but most of you know what's going on. Um, as you all know who Yost and Julie Zachary are, most of you know that Yost is on dialysis. And uh, I'm giving him one of my kidneys. And it went like this. A few months ago, Julie told Lydia, um, Yost will make it if he doesn't get a kidney. So we're praying for a donor. Okay. She comes home. She said, Jay, Yost needs a kidney or he will die. And the Lord, I, this is all God, I said, well, I've got two good ones. I guess he can have one of mine. And then I thought, what did I just say? <laughs> and she said, this is my wife said, she goes, I hope, she goes, I was hoping you would say that. Wow. I said, well, why don't you give him yours if you feel <laughs> that way about it? But, but here's the thing. I am going to not only give, I, it's surrendering my right to keep my bodily organ. Hmm. So I went to Pastor John. I said, John, what do you think? And John leaned into me and he said, Jay, the flesh doesn't want to give away anything. Doesn't want to give away money. Doesn't want to give away stuff. And it surely doesn't want to give away a bodily organ. He said, that's the spirit of God giving you contentment to give away. To surrender not only a, something I have, but surrender a right. You could almost say a a constitutional God-given right to my body, right? People would defend it. Like, it's mine that I take care of. But here's the thing. When, as a Christian, as a Christian we say, wait, it's not my body. Mm-hmm. It's God's body. This life is not my own. And so, you need my watch? You, what do you need? You need my coat? You need, a, you need a kidney? You need my time? What do you need from me? And I'll surrender... My possessions or I'll surrender my rights for the benefit of others and find ways to do that. Fearless and steady. I love this passage in verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will remember forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. What a beautiful phrase. What if, but just if you're just reflecting on Isaiah 51 6, I think it's worth reading this. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. 
It's why I can say I will never be moved. I'm not afraid of bad, mood, mood, bad news. My heart is firm. My heart is steady. I will not be afraid. Like four times. It's this like powerful declaration of pounding the pulpit and just saying, no, I'm not going to look at storms or bad credit or problems in our politics or problems in the global climate around us or problems at war or problems of this or that. I'm not going to look at that and be shaken. I'm going to stand firm, not because I'm strong physically, not because I'm strong in the strength of my own might, but in the strength of God. The righteousness of Christ in us allows us to live fearless in the face of bad news. Mm -hmm. The righteousness of Christ, what dwells in and through us, allows us to go to the hospital and have someone say, you have this disease. Now, I'm not saying we don't cry. I'm not saying we don't are concerned. But we don't have to be afraid. Amen. We don't have to be afraid. Mm -hmm. Famous lines that you hear from movies and oftentimes, you know, when someone's about to die and they say, I don't want to die. I'm scared to die. I think as Christians, we have to be able to look at death in the face and say, I don't really want to, but I'm not afraid. <clears throat> I'm not afraid to die. We have Christians who have died horrific deaths, <clears throat> praising the name of Jesus before their heads have been lopped off or their bodies have been burned. They're steady. John Phillips said this in his commentary on the Psalms. He said, we may not be able to praise him for what happens, but we can praise him in what happens. Mm -hmm. Bad news need not shake us. God is still on the throne. There may be two people in here that could know this story or at least know the incident. When I was five years old, I'm in the car or going to pick my brother up from school. He was seven. And I began to walk home. We were on Hillcrest Drive right before it starts going up. Um, the, the slope there and my brother started walking home and so my mother pulled over she looked both ways and she waved to John to walk and John began to walk and a car came up speeding through the school zone and my brother instead of running to the car his instinct told him to go back to the curb but if you're a good driver your instinct would tell you to do the same thing to swerve to miss the boy and you'd swerve right to the curb well, they met at the curb bounced him up headed the windshield he slid backwards we always say that just explains a lot about John for the rest of his life. But, but it slid him backwards. Now, John was okay. No broken bones, actually. Spent seven days in the hospital back then. And uh, at first, they weren't quite sure, right? With a head injury and so forth, he's fine. But um, my mother was at the hospital late at night. It was raining. And a lady by the name of Phyllis Dunham, I think, or Vicki Dunham. Some of you remember Vicki Dunham. Vicki Dunham came by my brother's hospital room. And she sat with my mother and she said, have you thanked God for what happened? She said, no, Vicki, I haven't. She says, you need to give God thanks. And everything gives thanks for this is the will of God. It's our will of God to give thanks in all circumstances. She went right back to the scene of the crime, right on that road. It was pouring down raining. She stopped the car. Same place that it was when he was hit. And she cried out to God. Just thank you. Thank you. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. But I'm thanking you in the bad news. <coughs> I want to tell you. <coughs> there is probably. No other incident. In the history of our family. That's had more. Of a penetrating mark. 
on my life than my mother praising the righteousness of God in bad news. Because I get to have my own bad news. And I'll have bad news my mother will never know about because she's in heaven. But she taught me at that moment how to stand unwavering in our bad news by thanking and praising the enduring righteousness of God. I want to exhort you in that. What you do now, your 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, what you're doing now may have an impact on that six-year-old grandchild 50 years from now. Don't underestimate it's good. Your righteous living. And last, the enduring righteousness versus eternal damnation. Yes, I did write eternal damnation in your notes. Um, it's pretty bold. It says here, but this is what it says. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Verse 10, might as well have said, but the wicked man see it. And is angry. They see righteousness because their heart is hardened with sin and they don't like it. They gnash their teeth and melt away. The desires of the wicked will perish. Friends, I, if you have the righteousness of Christ, know that you, your teeth are not gnashing. Your body is not melting away. Your soul is not melting away. And you need to pray for those who gnash their teeth at the righteousness of Christ. And we have a whole world of people. We see it more because of social media. There are people that hate Jesus. And there are people even within the formal structure of the American church who don't know who Jesus is but come and go. And their righteousness is not for the Lord. Their righteousness is for their own self. And so we need to be a people who endure to the end with generosity and sacrifice and love for our children and love for the lost as we present to them the righteousness of Christ. The unrighteous suffers eternal loss as they reject the righteousness of God that is through faith in Christ. May we be a people who get up every day and take delight in the commandments of God, who practice obedience to the commandments of God, and then bless the people around us. Distribute freely the love of God. Distribute freely our possessions. To distribute freely even justice to others who need it. That we might be people who endure to the end. Mm. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Let me pray for us. Heavenly <coughs> Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that you opened up to us the treasure trove of the Word of God. Uh, even just in our minutes of reading aloud the Word of God, we know it does not return void. So, Father, perhaps some of the words of man were misspoken or off course in some way, but, God, the Word of God is never off course. The Word of God is completely flawless. And so we thank you for that, Lord God. And we pray that our lives are edified and strengthened today by the word of God that you are most glorified as we delight in you and God I pray for everybody's life today Father that they will be walk out here with a sense of the righteousness of Christ and dwelling them know they can endure through anything forever and that they would constantly be just praying these prayers over their children and grandchildren many of who I'm sure are far from you and their children and grandchildren, we so want to see come to faith in Christ. And so, Father, we, we plead the blood of Christ for their lives.
And Father, we celebrate now along with our church body here, with the church body in Asbury and other places around the country and around our globe who are praying, seeking the Lord, and have been for so many centuries. And so we, we thank you that we're part of the great body of Christ. We love you in your name. Amen.